Thank you for joining us here at Life Church. It's an honor to share God's word with you today. Our prayer is that you will connect with Jesus Christ as you hear his word online. We'd love to have you visit one of our upcoming gatherings. For more information, visit us online at www.liferva.org or contact our church offices and we'll be happy to help you in any way that we can. Let's go now to one of our recent services where you can experience a life-giving message from God's Word. I like about my mom is that she's nice to me. She makes me feel special. I love her because she plays with me with brothers and I love watching movies with my mom. I love my mommy taking me to the zoo. She's so kind. One thing that I love about my mom is her cooking. I love when my mom plays with me. I love how even if she's struggling, she still stays strong for my siblings and I. I'm thankful for my mom gave me stuff that I need. And I'm also thankful you made my birthdays fun. Thank you for keeping us safe and giving all of our blessings. I love my mom because she reads books for me at night and she cooks stuff. She does everything for me and I love her so much. Thank you for saying prayers. Thankful that I have a mom who takes care of me every day, that provides me food and everything. I'm just thankful that I have a mom. Thank you for cooking for me, mom. I love you and I'm very thankful that you're my mother. Mom for coming to my basketball game. Thank you, mom, for letting me be your dad. Thank, Thank you, you, mom, for everything. Happy Mother's Day. 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 Happy Mother's Day, Mama. Happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day, Mom. I love you. Happy Mother's Day. It's always fun to hear from our sweet children. Happy Mother's Day to all you moms out there. This is your special day. You make a difference. You make an incredible impact on the world. And you are the ones who bring life and train the future leaders. And your words of encouragement live on in our heads forever. I still hear my mama's voice saying, I'm so proud of you. You're such a good girl. I also hear her saying, hey, are you going to eat that? If not, we don't want to waste food. I'll eat it. <laughs> her tone was sweet and her touch was comforting. And her prayers are still coming to pass today in my life. I honor my mother. I, I feel so blessed to have had such a wonderful, beautiful mother. I honor my daughters. I have two beautiful daughters. And I am so grateful that I had the chance to turn my little girl dream into a reality when I would push my babies in strollers and imagine that I was changing their diapers and cooking for them. It became reality. And then Lindsay gave me the greatest treasures in Mason and Ava, my precious grandbabies. And being a grandma is such a reward. I love this stage of life. <laughs> And I have grandbaby number three on the way, so I couldn't be happier. But today we're going to talk about another mother in the Bible, and that is Samson's mother. 
Her name is not mentioned in the Bible, but she matters. She was the mother of the strongest man in the history of the world. So before we jump into the story, I want to just set the stage of what life was like in Israel when Samson was born. In Israel at that time, they struggled with generational entitlement. Generations were born who didn't know the Lord and didn't appreciate their deliverance from Egypt or the inheritance of the land in which they lived because they weren't the ones who walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. And they were not the ones who fought the battles with Joshua to live in the land that they dwelled in. So they had generational entitlement. They also had fragmented national identity because they were no longer defined by their borders, culture, or language. Their borders were wide open. They had adopted the culture of heathen nations around them. And the Philistines spoke the Hebrew language just like they did. They were also struggling with political compromise. Israel lost the heart to fight for what is right. I'm not talking about America, but it sounds a little bit like I am. <laughs> they accommodated their oppressors because they wanted to find acceptance and prosperity. The Philistine rulers dominated the marketplace. They dominated the trade routes and the manufacturing. The Philistines also prohibited Israel from making and carrying weapons so that they could not fight. Enter Samson. In Judges chapter 13, verses 2 through 5, it says, A certain man of Zorah named Manoah from the clan of the Danites had a wife who was childless, unable to give birth. And the angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, You are barren and childless, but you are going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink, and that you do not eat anything unclean. You will become pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor, because the boy is to be a Nazarite, dedicated to God from the womb. He will take the lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. What a privilege to give birth to the man who would take the lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Now this barren woman, although she is not named, she must have been honored and thrilled and anxious to bring Samson into the world. Her son was to be the anointed deliverer for Israel. I remember those first days of finding out that I was going to have a child and just so excited to imagine what that child would be and laying my hands on my stomach that hadn't gotten big yet and just praying over my children. At that time, um, uh, our first daughter, we were the assistant pastors of Life Tabernacle and my friend and pastor's wife, Beth Dillon, we would pray, meet together every morning and pray. And when I was pregnant with Lauren, she was pregnant with her first daughter, Kayla. And so we would lay our hands on each other's bellies and just pray and speak life over our girls and just imagine what they would be and 
We prayed, we prayed for their eyes. We prayed for their ears. We prayed that they would have ten fingers and toes. We prayed that they would serve God all the days of their life. We just prayed and prayed and prayed over these kids. And we were so anxious to, to, win the, to see the day that they would arrive. What color of eyes would they have? Would, I hope she doesn't have my nose. I hope she has her dad's nose. And just all the exciting things. I'm sure that Samson's mother felt the same way, imagining what he was going to be and how God was going to use him to um, help defeat the Philistines. And he did, um, Samson began the defeat of the Philistines. And we're going to learn four important lessons from Samson's life from this story. And they are, number one, discipline is good for me. Number two, Conviction is God's attempt to draw me closer to him. Number three, grace must be accepted, not earned. And number four, God can turn the worst situation into the victory. So we're going to jump in and talk about the first point. Discipline is good for me. This barren woman, who no doubt felt the pain of infertility and the stigma of rejection and suspicion that came with it in those days, now was being asked to discipline herself to certain dietary restrictions until she gave birth. She was to set herself apart for this divine purpose, and I imagine that she was so excited to be pregnant that she gladly took on this Nazarite vow. Now, for her, this vow was temporary. Judges 13, 24, and 25 says, So the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the child grew, and the Lord blessed him, and the Spirit of the Lord began to move upon him. For her, this vow would end when she gave birth to her son. But for Samson, this vow would be for his entire life. A Nazarite vow would require three main things. It would... The first one was no razor was to come upon his head. This no haircut rule was an outward sign of God's blessing and strength. It was a symbol that God was the ultimate authority in Samson's life. The second rule in uh, the Nazarite vow was he shall not drink wine nor any fermented drink. This no alcohol rule was a sign that he was to be filled with the Holy Spirit's power and not be drunk or operate under any other influence. It was also a sign of spiritual consecration and that God was his ultimate pleasure in his life. The third sign, the, uh, the third rule was that he was not to eat or touch anything unclean. Certain animals were considered to be unclean and he was not to eat them. Dead bodies were considered unclean and he could not touch them or be near them. This was to show that Samson was holy and separate. I don't know how Samson's mother went about teaching him about these rules and how to live them. I don't know if she was a controlling mother or a permissive one. And when I say that, I'm sure that every single person in the room can quickly identify which kind of mother their mother was. Or just by a show of hands, this is just because just I'm curious, Raise your hand if you had a controlling mother. If, if she's sitting beside you, you're scared to raise your hand. I get it. <laughs> All right. Raise your hand if you had a permissive mother. 
Okay, all of the rest of you did not have mothers. I don't know, I'm not here to say which one is better, or controlling or permissive, but most of us will fall on one side or the other. I don't know what kind of a mom she was, but she needed to teach Samson um, about these rules, about his calling, and I have confidence that she did that. As a mother, I did not find discipline easy. Now, my kids may beg to differ with that, but... It really wasn't easy. It was, to me, necessary because I always felt if they don't know, if I don't teach and train them, then I, who's going to do it? It's my job, number one, and I want them to learn to follow God, and that begins with obeying your parents. But it is necessary to help us live in harmony with God and others. Parents are called to discipline their children so that they may become wise and mature. Parents, I'm asking you to love your kids enough to do the hard work of discipline. It is no fun, but patiently train them what is right because it will eventually pay off. And if it does not, I want to say that, if you train your children and discipline them in love, and you're patiently teaching them the ways of God, and they grow up and make rebellious choices, that is not on you. You have done your job, and you just leave them and trust them to the Lord. Um, in Hebrews twelve eleven, it says, No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. So as a mother, as a father, do the hard work of helping your kids learn that discipline is good for me. And as a child of God, all of us today, we can embrace that. As a child of God, I'm a daughter of God, and I want to be disciplined. Uh, I want to have a disciplined life that will bring a harvest of good things. In life, even if I'm anointed and have a holy purpose on my life, I still need to embrace discipline. Hebrews 12, 4 through 11 says, In this all-out match against sin, we are living in a spiritual warfare. Others have suffered far worse than you. So, shut your trap and stop whining. <laughs> the scripture really doesn't say that, but... He's saying, say nothing of what Jesus went through, all that bloodshed. So don't feel sorry for yourselves. Or have you forgotten how good parents treat children and that God regards you as his children? My dear child, don't shrug off God's discipline, but don't be crushed by it either. It's the child he loves that he disciplines. The child he embraces, he also corrects. God is educating you. That's why you must never drop out. He's treating you as dear children. This, tr this trouble you're in isn't punishment. It's training, the normal experience of children. Only irresponsible parents leave children to fend for themselves. Would you prefer an irresponsible God? We respect our own parents for training and not spoiling us. So why not embrace God's training so we can truly live? While we were children, our parents did what seemed best to them. 
But God is doing what is best for us, training us to live God's holy best. At the time, discipline isn't fun. It always feels like it's going against the grain. Later, of course, it pays off big time. For it's the well-trained who find themselves mature in their relationship with God. So everyone say, discipline's good for me. Yes, it is. And so let's embrace it. Samson, he didn't seem to embrace living a disciplined life. He was anointed, but his lack of personal discipline eventually brought him down. He followed his emotions quite a bit. Discipline is good for me, and conviction is God's attempt to draw me closer to him. Conviction happens when God is trying to get our attention. And God may try 15 different ways to try us back to him. I'm sure God tried to get Samson's attention as he was living his life, letting his emotions dictate his actions. And you can read the full story of Samson and how he defeated the Philistines on several occasions. His full story is found in the book of Judges from chapters 13 to chapters 16. It was probably a series of ups and downs for Samson's mama. When the Spirit of the Lord would come on him and he would work mighty for the Lord and do wonderful things, she probably danced for joy and was so proud. Yes, that's my son. Look at him. He's the strongest man in the world. He's shining for God and for Israel. Yet when his quick temper flared or he was caught sleeping with a prostitute, she probably laid on the couch and cried herself to sleep. I wonder if she said, what did I do wrong? I can hear her pleading with Samson, son, you were born for a holy purpose. You're not only strong and special, but you're also the deliverer of Israel. Son, please, please make better choices. We're counting on you. The Lord is counting on you. The angel came and told me of your special birth. You're set apart. You're different. Please, son, please make better choices. God's message of convicting love is everywhere. Sometimes we're not quiet enough to hear it. We fill our lives with so much busyness and noise. And I, sometimes I think that's one of the greatest downfalls of um, technology. Because it's, it's, it's so available and ready everywhere. And it's constant noise and playing and I think it's making a lot of people a little bit ADD because they're so used to just something coming in their brain all the time that it seems like our attention spans are getting shorter. But God's message of convicting love is everywhere, and he, sometimes he'll speak to us through a song. It might be a friend. It could be a video on Facebook. It could be a friend or a parent. He wants us to listen to him because he loves us. But if we persist in our ways, he'll withhold privileges from us or blessings. And he's not doing it to be mean. He's trying to get us to grow up, get our attention, and get us back on track. And when I yield to conviction, I'm brought to repentance. And it lifts me up out of my sin, and it leads me back to the heart of God. I have a very tender heart, which means that I am easily moved 
to tears. I can cry at the drop of a hat, you know. If you start crying, I'm probably going to start crying. So it's not hard for me to be easily moved, but sometimes I can be really stubborn too. And I can say, I'm not hearing it, not listening. And just refuse to hear what God is trying to say to me. But it's always a good thing when I do respond. I feel better whenever I respond to the conviction. If God is dealing with you about something, don't resist it. Receive it because it's his love trying to draw you closer to his heart. That's him chasing after you, fighting for you, and trying to draw you close. Today, maybe the Lord is whispering to you, hey, I want you to make more room for me. I want you to take a little bit more time to rest in my presence and worship me. Or, hey, I, I would I want to speak to you through my word. I'll, how about if you, if you get up a little bit earlier and, and get into my word before you start your day? I don't know what the Lord is whispering to you, but whatever he's speaking to you, don't resist, but follow that conviction and be disciplined enough to obey. In Revelations 3 and 20, it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Isn't that something to think that the God of all creation is standing at the door of your heart and wants to spend time with you? He wants to lavish his love on you. I think that's such a privilege and a beautiful thing. Maybe you're feeling challenged to shore up your priorities. Maybe God's convicting you of drawing some stronger boundaries in your life. Is it possible that something's crowded out God? Maybe your work life has taken over every relationship you have. We have to work. We do have to make a living. And that's a good thing. But has your career overwhelmed you to the point that you spend all of your energy and time on work, even when you're not on the clock. That's not a good, healthy, balanced life for you. And our Heavenly Father knows that misplaced priorities can keep you off balance and separate you from Him, separate you from your family, separate you from your friends. So if you will receive the conviction of the Lord, He can help you get back on track. Maybe today God is calling you to something that's unique to only you. Can I tell you that not everyone has the same calling? Not everyone has the same struggle. Not everyone has the same strength. Not everyone has the same vulnerability. And that's why we find in the Bible there are different, when different people came to Jesus and said, what must I do to be saved? He told the rich young ruler, you sell all that you have. And come and follow me. Does Jesus want all of us to sell everything that we have? No. But what he knew was the rich young ruler's riches was standing in between him and Jesus. That those riches meant more to him than Jesus meant to him. And so when you feel a conviction, it may be very personal to you because God knows you. If you're feeling drawn to a certain consecration, don't look around 
and excuse yourself from it. Well, you know, Sister So-and-so over there, she doesn't seem to have a problem with it, so I guess I'm okay with it. Because I'm a one-of-a-kind creation, my consecrations may be one-of-a-kind as well. Because I might have a greater vulnerability to certain things, so therefore my loving Heavenly Father will convict me to stay away from things that lead to my bondage. But they may not lead to your bondage. My husband is a much stronger person than I am, and he can be on social media with no problem and regulate it well and still have time for his family and God and church and work and all the responsibilities. But for me, maybe I would just waste my life away. Maybe I would just start comparing myself to other people. Maybe I would get caught up in the, look at me. Look at my hair today. Look at my shoes today. Don't I look good today? All the poses I don't know how to do. Uh, and then maybe I'd check and look and see if, how, if I got, you know, two likes or 50 likes. I don't know. I, but, you know, maybe that's the trap I would fall in. Who knows? But all I know is that for me it's good not to be on social media. God's asked that of me. And so he knows why. But that may be not true for you. But conviction always draws you closer to God and is for your good. But don't confuse conviction with being works-driven. Accept God's grace instead of working to receive forgiveness. For years, I refused to accept God's grace until... I had sufficiently cried, repented, and groveled long enough. I'd punish myself by working to earn God's grace. And only when I thought I had paid enough for my sins to deserve forgiveness would I receive his grace. And I know that's messed up thinking because here's the real deal. If I think I deserve what I receive, then it's no longer a gift, but it's a reward. And I could not receive the gift of grace. I was working to get the reward of forgiveness. And only when I thought I had done enough good deeds, prayed long enough, fasted a certain number of days, would I receive God's help. So just as, I, uh, just as an example, and I didn't even realize I was doing this, but I lived my life like this. As a, a young girl in college, um, I was asked to sing, I think it was sing, at chapel. And so I, you know, I had to go into a long time of prayer and fasting. And I had to, you know, weep and cry and pray long enough until I was assured that the Lord was going to use me. And, you know, all this stuff that I put myself through because, you know, I'm so unworthy. You know, I, I got to pay the price to be worthy enough to stand up there and sing in chapel. No one cared. These were college kids. They just wanted to get to class. They did not care what I sang. And I don't even remember what I sang. And I can assure you that it wasn't a holy hush moment where God just moved in because I had prayed and fasted long enough. But here I was with this mindset, and, and my boyfriend, he's so handsome, and he knocked on my window, and I opened the window, and he said, Are you coming to the hoedown? 
it was a special um, fun night that we had at, at school, and everyone was dressed up like cowgirls and cowboys, and they were playing, you know, hoedown music and playing games, and it was supposed to be a real fun time. I said, oh, I can't. I gotta stay in my room and pray. I'm so holy. So, you know, needless to say, he was not real pleased. You know, he was kind of putting a little pressure on me. He was kind of, you know, trying to trying to tempt me to come out and join him. <laughs> Let's party. Let's have some fun. Um, so I said, just take my sister. Take her to the hoedown instead of me. So he did. And forever we have a picture of him and Kim sitting on a bale of hay <laughs> at the hoedown. <laughs> and I'm back in my room just to pray and But you know what? That wasn't, that was, I was working to earn the right for God to use me. And I didn't even realize that I was working to earn my salvation or people's approval and God's favor. But I was. And this works-driven lifestyle created an attitude of self-righteousness and a judgmental spirit towards others that I wasn't even aware of. In fact, somebody at college told me I was self-righteous, and I was so offended. And I promptly looked back and told them that I was very humble. <laughs> that they were wrong. I did not have a self-righteous spirit. <laughs> but how could I truly be grateful for God's grace when I believed I deserved it because I worked so hard for it? It led me to a place where I couldn't work hard enough and I couldn't make everybody do right. And I became so angry at God because he wasn't giving me what I thought I deserved. I felt betrayed by him. God, I prayed that this church, blah, 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 and they walked out the door. God, I love their kids, and I prayed for their kids, and I fought for their kids, and they don't even care. And I acted as if it was my right, and I had earned it, that I deserved for it took my life to look like this. And then I took it a step farther. I got so bitter and ugly and hateful, I probably was really hard to live with. I thought, I started looking, in every time I would read the Bible, because you remember, I'm really holy, so I read the Bible every day. Let me just remind you of that. Even in my hateful, ugly bitterness, I was reading the Bible. But when I was reading the Bible, I was not seeing the love of God, because I was swallowed up in my pit by the lie that I was, I had, I deserved this. And the scripture, he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. I had the nerve to throw that up before God and say, diligently seek him. Uh, what do you think I'm doing? I'm diligently seeking to you. This doesn't seem good to me. This doesn't feel good to me. And then I said, what did Moses feel, God? He was diligently seeking you. Look what he did. He listened to you. He obeyed you, God. Look at Moses. And I read his story, and I just so bitter and so angry. I can't believe, God, that he did all that for you. And then what did you do for Moses? 
Oh, yeah, Moses has the pain and the labor of carrying around whiners in the desert for 40 years, and then he doesn't even get to go to the promised land. Wow, what a good God you are. I was so ugly and bitter because I was works-driven, and it drove me to a place where I couldn't even see the grace of God that was chasing me down. And you know what I didn't even consider? I'm standing in the gap for Moses. Poor Moses. I'm giving God the what for for Moses. And you know what? Moses, he's dead and gone. He's in heaven. He's having a great time. And he's probably thinking, high five, God. You did me a solid. I mean, I don't have to put up with these people anymore. And you know what, Moses he was probably really glad that he didn't have to go and fight all the battles because they were getting ready to go into the land that there was going to be military campaign after military campaign. They were going to get the promised land, but it was going to take a long fight. And Moses was probably like, shoo, I don't have to deal with that anymore. I'm ready for heaven. That's not the way I saw it, though. And I didn't see it that way for a number of men and women in the Bible, just let me tell you. If you ask me, I can tell you what God should have done. But thank God that when I was being a rebellious brat, that he didn't give up on me. But his grace chased me down, and he pursued me in my sin, and his love fought for me. He left the 99 to find me. I couldn't earn that kind of grace. And I didn't even deserve that kind of grace. But he freely gave it to me. In fact, one time, my, now my mother is a sweet la lady, and she was kind and, and was always in my corner cheering me on. But one time, I was just a whining and complaining and bellyaching and being bitter. And she said, girl you better buck up. And I couldn't believe she said that to me. Ooh, my mother, what? But she knew that I needed to get right with God and bend my knee to him and, and repent because I had a stinky attitude. But how, uh, how God's grace is so good. He sent people to love me. He sent people to pray for me. He sent people to speak life over me. Whenever I was believing the lies of the enemy, he sent people to pray away the voice of the enemy. And he opened my eyes to the ugliness of my sin. And he brought me to repentance in his goodness and his grace. So how do I know if I'm following a conviction or if I'm being works-driven? Well, conviction results in peace with God and I am drawn closer to him and I am in his loving presence and I feel like a little girl who's been comforted and blessed and I'm in sync with him living a works-driven life feels like work and I will think that I deserve the paycheck because I have worked for it. And I deserve this honor because I have worked for it. 
and I deserve this right. And it usually isn't accompanied by joy in a humble heart. The fruit of a works-driven life is usually pride and self-righteousness. Because grace is not based on me, but it's based on God. And I am so grateful that his truth endures to all generations and his mercy is new every morning. And I want both in my life. I want both grace and truth. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, but it is a gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. Well, Samson found the grace of God at the lowest point of his life. He fell in love with Delilah, who eventually brought him down. And the story goes like this. The Philistines find out who Samson's new girlfriend is, and they go to her. They say, we're going to give you a lot of money if you seduce him into telling you what his strength, where his strength lies. And so she says, okay, I got it. I got this. The first time she asks Samson, why are you so strong? He tells her, well, if you tie me up with seven cords made from fresh animal tendons, then I'll be weak like any other man. He falls asleep. She ties him up. Then she comes to him, up to him and says, Samson, the Philistines are on you. He wakes up. He snaps the ropes like they're just threads. Well, you know what? That didn't work. She pouts around. She works her magic, and she tells him, hey, Please, don't lie to me this time. I want to know why you're so strong. Show me your muscle. Mm. Wow, look at that bicep. Ooh, Ooh man, boy. I, ooh, you, you are the strongest man in the world. And so he tells her, well, if you tie me up with new ropes that have never been used, then I'll be weak. Again, she ties him up. He snaps the ropes. They go through this again. This next time, he says, if you weave my seven locks of hair through a loom in with the fabric, then I'll be weak. Same thing. She says, the Philistines are upon you. He jumps up, rips the loom out of his hair. He's still strong. So finally, she wears him down. And she's weeping and crying and carrying on and nagging him and just... I'm telling you, I don't know if any of you husbands have been pecked or nagged to death, but Samson was nagged to death until she laid it on so thick he just couldn't resist, and she torments him until he says, okay, this is the truth. A razor's never touched my head. I've been God's Nazarite from conception. If I were shaved, my strength would leave me. And so she cuts off his hair. And in Judges 16 and 20, it says, Then she called Samson. The Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. God had given him chance after chance. Wanting him to pay attention to discipline and convictions. But he didn't. They grab Samson, they gouge out both of his eyes, they chain him up, and they put him in a prison. 
He had to work in that prison, grinding at the mill. His bad choices had finally caught up with him. He had not valued the holy calling on his life. He was anointed, but he lived an undisciplined life, and he refused to allow conviction to draw him back to God. But grace met him in the lowest place of his life. And there he was in the prison. Can you imagine how humiliated he was? The strongest man in the world was weak. He was blind, and he was a slave to the very people that he was born to deliver the nation of Israel from. And he's in this prison. I believe it's a prison of his own making because he would not follow the conviction in the heart of God. And we all have freedom to choose, but we are not free from the consequences of our choices. And so Samson had to pay the consequences of his choices. But as time went on, he began to repent. In that prison, he began praying and talking with God. And God answers Samson's prayer. Because God can turn the worst situation to victory. Judges 16, 28 through 30 reads, Then Samson prayed to the Lord, Sovereign Lord, remember me. Please, God, strengthen me just once more, and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. Then Samson reached toward the two central pillars on which the temple stood, bracing himself against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And then he pushed with all his might. And down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. Thus he killed many more when he died than while he lived. This victory looked like a tragedy. Samson's life held so much promise and potential. He was used to take down thousands of Israel's enemies, which was his life's purpose. That's what he was born to do. But it looked messy. The Philistine defeat began with Samson. Those who had picked on the nation of Israel were finally brought down by him. Not long after <coughs> Samson, Israel was completely broken of the hold from the hold of the Philistines through King David. I would think that Samson's mother mourned bitterly for her son. This victory probably didn't feel like victory to her. Her son was dead. How could she rejoice in this situation? But what she couldn't see was that her son would one day be included in the Heroes of Faith chapter in the Bible. Because God can use bad situations to fulfill his purpose. I want to encourage you today. If you find yourself in a mess and you say, how could God ever get glory out of this? I've made awful choices. I want to encourage you. God can turn it around and use it for your good and for his good. God can use bad situations to fulfill his purpose. 
If you're a parent and you're looking at your child and you're thinking, oh, my goodness, oh, my, this isn't what I prayed for, what's going to happen? God can use bad situations to fulfill his purpose. In Hebrews 11, chapter chapter 11, which is the faith chapter, just go home and read that. It's inspiring. And Samson is listed there. In verses 32 through 34, it says, And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Japheth, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Her boy was included in the Heroes of Faith chapter. So no matter what it looks like, and I don't, I don't even care if it looks like that unto death. You don't know what God's doing, what he did, and what's going to happen in the future. You do not know what's going to happen through the line of your descendants. Only God knows that. But no matter what it looks like, God's grace was with Samson in the last moments of his life. And here he is listed among the heroes of faith. God used Samson in a mighty way that forever changed the lives of the Israelite people. I'm going to ask the worship team to come. Even though Samson walked in and out of obedience, God never stopped chasing him. God used Samson in his death to bring deliverance to his people. And sometimes we think we know the end of the story, but God has the long view. He sees the beginning and he sees the end. He has an advantage that we don't have, so let's trust him. If you're here today or you're listening online, please embrace discipline. It's good for you. And pay attention if conviction is stirring your heart. That's God trying to draw you close. Accept God's grace. As you repent, don't try to work out a payment plan. Jesus already paid it. Just accept God's grace. And if your situation seems hopeless, remember that God can use bad situations to fulfill his purpose. And he can turn the worst ones to victory. Your life matters. You do have a purpose. Maybe you thought the best years of your life were over, but you're still living. And you're living in this generation. You're here for a reason. God sees you. He knows you. You're his child. He loves you. He breathed his life in you. He called you to the kingdom for such a time as this. And he has a plan and a purpose. I want you to stand with me today. And the worship team is going to sing this song. If you feel led to come to this altar, God's going to meet you here. He has a plan and a purpose for you. Please don't give up.
He saw you from the beginning. Hey, thanks for watching. Be sure to subscribe to this channel so you never miss one of our videos or live streams in the future. Also, take a moment and share this with a friend. Be sure to join us 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. each week live as we celebrate Jesus together here at Life Church. God bless you.